You can't spell inclusion without a D, the podcast that explores the power of inclusion and why disability is an important part of the workplace diversity and inclusion conversation. Produced by the Ontario Disability Employment Network, with your hosts, Jeanette Campbell and Dean Askin. Barbie, you're listening from, welcome to the show. This is episode two of You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D. I'm Dean Askin. And I'm Jeanette Campbell. Dean, I don't know about you, but I've been excited about this episode and the conversation we're about to have for weeks now, ever since our guests confirmed that they could be on the show. Me too, Jeanette. You know, we've aimed pretty high for our first two episodes, haven't we? Mm-hmm. I mean, we launched this podcast with a conversation about the power of inclusion, and one of our guests was Canada's Federal Minister of Employment, Workforce Development and Disability Inclusion, Carla Qualtrough. And for this episode, well, we aimed high again. We're talking with one of Canada's most well-known economists about people who have a disability being the secret weapon for businesses and just what that means. And we like to say at Odin, we're a small but mighty team and we always go big. So speaking of that, Derek Burlton is Vice President and Deputy Chief Economist at TD Bank and the co-author of an October 2019 report titled Canadians with Disabilities, Seizing the Opportunity. And Derek, I know you're extremely busy and you're always being contacted by journalists for your perspective. And if I'm right, you do well over 75 speaking engagements a year. I think I even saw that you recently talked to three chambers of commerce in two days alone. So thank you so much for finding time in your speaking schedule and your working schedule and your life schedule for being on this episode of You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D. And I'd like to thank our other guest for making the time in his very busy executive schedule to be part of the conversation on this episode. You know, whenever I'm writing information pieces we publish, in them, I'm always referring to the studies and the new model of diversity and inclusion that emphasize how and why DNI has to be driven from the top down. So the conversation in this episode really wouldn't be rounded out without getting the C-suite perspective on DNI at TD. Joining us along with Derek Burlton is Paul Clark. He's the president of TD Direct Investing and the executive vice president of TD Bank Group. He's also chair of TD's People with Disabilities Committee and a member of the TD Diversity Leadership Council. Paul, thanks again for being on the show. Derek, I'd like to throw the first question at you and start off the conversation by asking you this. You know, business pays attention when economists publish their economic outlook or they talk to chambers of commerce about the state of the economy. But what about when you publish a report like Canadians with Disabilities Seizing the Opportunity? It's been a year since this report came out. What's your sense? Have business leaders been paying much attention to what you said in it? Yeah, it comes back to your right. When economists speak, there is often attention paid, albeit on the economic outlook, which is been kind of the traditional bailiwick of uh, bank economic uh, economists. Um, we're revising our forecasts almost monthly, so I think people are kind of look at new forecasts with glazed uh, eyes now. But uh, but all that to say, I think all even more when we write outside of that traditional sphere, we get into some of the biggest public policy challenges, like you know how to become more inclusive as, as an economy, as a as a country. Uh, that tends to get more attention than average. So 
to go back to your question, I, I was really pleased at the uh, the response to our report. It's now been about a year, hard to believe. A lot has happened since then, but um, you know, you know, we we did get a lot of response, and, and I think part of it was uh, the timing of it. Um, we weren't alone in as as a leading area speaking on on behalf of becoming more inclusive with respect to people with disabilities. There were a number of leading chambers that had also issued reports, including the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. I think it just made the, the message even resonate more. Uh, the other thing uh, to do with timing is just the tightness of the labor markets a year ago. You know, often when we get towards the end of expansions, unemployment rates get very low. This is when businesses become more sensitive to tight labor markets. They need uh, there's shortages of labor abounding, and uh, we've heard central bankers, both in Canada and the United States, talk about the inclusive benefits of, of running an economy hot. The hotter it gets, uh, you get unemployment rates for disadvantaged groups uh, falling to levels you haven't seen in, in decades or even generations. So we were getting to that point here in Canada as well. Uh, now, whether uh, in terms of listening, uh, you know, I think one of the questions is, Will some of the messages truly resonate among the business community? And I think it's too early to say for sure, because part of the challenge is that since the report last year, we've been disrupted and upended rather by this pandemic. And unfortunately, it's, um, you know, it, it, it's really kind of distracted from some of the attention that it, issues like uh, PWD were getting. And even more, I think, just looking at how it's affected the PWD uh, group in general with almost 30% now struggling to pay their rent. I mean, the statistics go on and on, but I mean, that's a bit of a concern, but hopefully we can get back on track and get back on message uh, as we hopefully escape from this very unfortunate pandemic situation. As you mentioned, there's a, a labor shortage across a gamut of industries in this country. And, you know, you've described people who have a disability in a way that's really not been heard before. I mean, the secret weapon for, for businesses, those are three really small, powerful words. Why did you choose that phrase? Uh, well, actually, I have to give credit to my, my colleague at the time, Brian DePrato. But I, I, when I saw that, I thought that was absolutely fantastic. And I think in part, uh, you know, the secret weapon, a weapon is, you know, a very powerful, uh, has a very po powerful connotation. So that, I think that's one thing. In terms of secret weapon, I think when we think about some of the biggest challenges we'll be facing as a nation, the aging of the, the workforce, the threat that's going to have to you know, economic growth, business profitability. Um, you know, I, I, a lot of the focus goes on, okay, we need to bring in more newcomers into Canada. We need to, you know, upskill our workforce. But, you know, the, the whole people with disabilities angle doesn't tend to get the recognition. And yet you look at the numbers and it's astounding. A report cites that, you know, one in five Canadians have a reported uh, disability, uh, whether it's... Uh, physical, um, you know, mental, that kind of thing. And it's astounding, 6 million people. And our report talks about how that number will grow to as much as one in four over the next uh, one to two decades or 9 million people. That's a huge slice of the population. Even with milder forms of disability, uh, underemployment rates tend to be much higher, employment levels are lower. So it gives you the sense for what kind of opportunity this has in terms of filling our future labor force needs. So I think that 
is really the, the secret weapon connotation. There will be an advantage to first movers, we believe, even though policy is kind of moving businesses in general towards more disclosure of what they're doing on this front. There will be a first mover advantage. And, uh, you know, I, I think just last, I'll uh, just wrap it up. The, the theme of weapon weaponry uh, can both be used for offensive and defensive. And I think one of the things in our research we did show that, you know, from a defensive, it's going to help to retain talent as well. It's not just about bringing in new talent. Uh, you know, if one can, uh, you know, knock down barriers, increase uh, accessibility within workplaces, it's also about retaining uh, talent as well. And, you know, Derek, you're bringing up some really incredible points. And I'm wondering somewhere in there, I know we'll we'll touch a little bit on this uh, defensive strategy. Uh, but you, you also started talking about the Canadian statistics uh, for people who have a disability. And, and one of the, the things that we know right now is that there's a, quite a disparity in the employment rate. So we know that uh, Canadians who identify as having a disability, uh, their employment rate is sitting at 59% versus 80% for people who don't have a disability or don't identify as having a disability. So that's a really, really large talent pool that's uh, there and available. And so I'm going to turn this over to Paul now. And Paul, I'd really like to get your thoughts on this. You're on TD's Diversity Leadership Council. Uh, thinking to what Derek was saying there uh, in these numbers, are people who have a disability the secret weapon? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I was thinking about this interview this morning when I was out walking the dogs, and we're seeing uh, that secret weapon in play right now, and 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 it's in the pandemic. Um, you know, if you think about the context of someone who has a disability. Uh, and the challenges they've had to overcome in their lives and their resiliency uh, in very difficult circumstances, we are all living that right now. And it's interesting, within my own team, I'm seeing this. You know, uh, our team members who have a disability approach this environment in a way uh, that just demonstrates that they've had a set of life skills that they've built over time. Uh, and so, you know, for those of us, uh, who have the pleasure of working with people with different capabilities, when you're in an environment like this, it really speaks to why that's so important. They are the secret sauce for us. Uh, and it's no more true than now. You know, we're, we just launched a new business in the last couple of days. Uh, and the team is made up of individuals from right across the bank. Uh, and they've all been building this capability while they've been working from home. There's not a single person that's going into the office. And all of us have had to adapt to this environment. And some of us, like myself, have struggled with it. Uh, but others have really uh, thrived. And it's interesting that a lot of the people who are thriving in this environment are people, in fact, that have a disability. It's a proof point, I think. Well, and it's very interesting that you would say that because, you know, just a few days ago, we uh, hosted a business panel and we had Microsoft on the panel. And uh, one of the comments and points that they kept coming back to was the fact that inclusion drives innovation. And so when you have uh, when you have a team, when you have a diverse team, you have and you've succeeded in creating that culture of inclusion, you drive innovation naturally. And uh, and the the benefits that are reaped in 
every business when they when they have that uh, as you call it you know the secret sauce uh, is just that the measurements are coming out and we're seeing more and more and more to your point and to the reports that TD is putting out that there really is a lot of success there but um, so on that on the sort of converse of that in in that study it talks about the fact that many businesses in the country are still lagging behind on uh, disability and the recruiting and retention strategies to reach that talent pool. So why do you think this is still happening? Paul, um, your thoughts first. Yeah, for me, this comes down to uh, one piece. And the piece is that I still think there are a lot of businesses out there that when they think about a person with a disability, they immediately go to accommodation. And accommodation is incredibly important. It's a legal responsibility of nothing else. Um, and it's the right thing to do, but it doesn't end there. You know, we don't hire people with disabilities so we can accommodate for them. We hire them for the contribution that they can make. And I think inside of organizations, to me, that is the tipping point. When an organization understands that the real value here is in the contribution that someone with a disability brings to your organization, the diversity of thought, the diversity of approach, the diversity of lived experience, when you recognize that, then you begin to shift towards development and career progression. And I think inside of most organizations today, that's the challenge. The challenge is not necessarily accommodation. It's how to reframe the conversation to say, how do I take full advantage of what you can bring to our company? And at the same time, do I develop you to be that great resource that I know you can be? Absolutely. And I think you just gave me a couple of terms that I'm going to be using quite often. And uh, so thank you for pointing out that difference around really what's behind hiring is that you do, you hire people for the contribution that they're going to bring. You don't hire them for the opportunity to make an accommodation. And, uh, and, and it's interesting on our, on our last podcast, this point also came up around accommodation and, uh, and how it doesn't need to be such a sticking point anymore. And we're hopefully starting to move away from that. And so you bring up one of those things that I like to call an immediate no syndrome. Uh, and it's that resistance point often that people have, especially when they're being introduced to a new concept. And so accommodation is one of those things that creates a barrier. Um, and, and we know that people are working hard to get rid of these barriers. So uh, Derek, I'm going to ask you first, and then Paul, what are businesses risking or missing out on if they aren't getting in front of this and if they aren't recruiting candidates and retaining and promoting employees who are coming from the disability talent pool? Well, uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I think it comes down, I, I loved your point about innovation. Uh, you know, it comes down to both reduced growth opportunities and, uh, you know, uh, and obviously, uh, uh, profitability potential. I think that's one thing. I mean, that drives a lot of business decisions in the end. And, uh, you know, I think the more and more research we dug up, and, and I think it goes back to the last question as well about, you know, what's holding back businesses. I think, you know, it, to some extent, there is a lot of mis- misinformation out there. And I know there, I was kind of looking through some of the, you know, some of the uh, the research the other day. And, I think one of the chambers put out a great MythBuster article that uh, kind of walked through a number of, you know, misperceptions about uh, people with disabilities. And you know, one that uh, Paul touched on, uh, you know, the uh, the cost of accommod or the 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 issue of accommodation. And 
you know, I think there's this notion that uh, the cost is going to be thousands and thousands of dollars. But I think, uh, you know, in actuality, a lot of accommodation uh, can be uh, implemented at, at pretty low cost. And of course, government programs are there to defer some of the cost as well. So that that is one thing. But I think it comes down to this notion as well, this perception that, you know, that people with disabilities are, are naturally less productive because of some of the uh, the challenges and barriers they face. That's not the case. Um, you know, you mentioned some of the innovation potential impact on morale. I think the research shows that companies that uh, have implemented more inclusive and successful inclusive strategies, uh, you know, comes back again to that point about uh, uh, retention of staff, morale, uh, you know, improvements. Uh, so, you know, this is the sort of thing I think that needs to be uh, communicated more um, because I think there is an awareness issue as well that holds back. Uh, uh, progress in this space. And Paul, uh, what are your thoughts on that as well? Yeah, I, I, I commit this slightly different than Derek, albeit I'm going to use the same type of analogy. We're going to get in trouble from human resources for constantly using violent analogies in our discussion. But, uh, you know, if, if people with disabilities are the secret sauce and and, and a secret weapon that we can leverage. I mean, the practical reality is regardless of unemployment rates, you know, we're fortunate enough to live in a country where there is always a war for talent. There is a, always a war for the best talent. Uh, and, and so to exclude a community that can provide so much value means you've already lost that war. And so for us, we start from a place that says, if we wanna hire the best, then we have to go after every available population uh, that there is out there. I think the other thing for us as an organization is, you know, we are a service business and to be successful, you have to reflect the population you serve. And so here too, you need to be diverse. You need to attract every member of society to your company. And then, you know, I just want to go back to this innovation thing, because I think it's important. There's a lot of organizations out there that innovate but they innovate without any direction. It's almost as, as if they feel this need to produce something new to say they're innovators. You know, we like to talk about innovate with purpose. And there is no group inside of TD that innovates with purpose more than persons with disability. And I'll give you just a very small example that I could give you so many. You know, when we launched our mobile app, um, we were late in uh, allowing clients to do mobile deposit, meaning that they could take a picture of their check and then the money goes right into their account. The reason we were late was because a couple of our colleagues recognized that if we were gonna do this properly, we had to build into the app the capability to actually address uh, someone who has tre tremors. Like how can we help someone who may have tremors? We actually slowed down production of something just to address that one issue. Now, again, this is that community, our community coming to us and saying, look, if you're going to launch this, you have to think about everyone. You have to get it right. You have to innovate with purpose. Uh, and the, you know, the greatest story about that, you talked about Microsoft, and, and I know the folks at Microsoft really well. We talk about this all the time. That innovate with purpose for one community ends up helping all communities. And that's a perfect example where we all benefit from the fact that it's just a little bit easier uh, to use an app to make a deposit. And that's simply because of this community getting it right. Absolutely. I know for, for one thing, I appreciate that function. I find it uh, 
I find it great. And it, it increases accessibility to the services uh, so much more. You don't have to go into the bank. You don't have to go to the branch. You don't have to wait in lines or get to a machine. Uh, and as somebody who doesn't have the steadiest hands in the world, even on my best days, I, I really find great value in knowing somebody stopped and paused for a minute to think about that. And it is, it's a point where you can see that when you design with that intentionality and that that um, mindfulness about making sure that there's every every functionality is in there, everybody benefits. So that's yeah, super. You know, somebody's got to use the battle and the and the war on talent analogy and lead the charge. You know, it's really the financial services sector globally and the big five banks in this country that are leading the way on diversity and inclusion. And I find this just fascinating. I mean, all the major banks in Canada are in their definitive top 100 diversity and inclusion index for 2020. And three of them are in the top 20. I mean, TD's number 14. And the reason I find this fascinating is that I worked for a large financial services company in communications for five years. And the sector has this traditional reputation or image of being conservative, and it can take a long time to get things done in large organizations. So, Paul, what's going on here? And I ask that in a good way. Yeah, I, you know, it, it's interesting. I mean, we employ, we employ close to 90,000 colleagues, uh, predominantly in North America, but around the world. And we hire thousands of colleagues every day. And, and I think the misnomer about conservative banks plays back to the vestiges of when we were kids. You know, and we thought about going into the branch and everybody was in a suit and it was quiet and you know, that environment was very different. You have to remember today, we are hiring thousands of people, young people out of university uh, into their first jobs. We're developing those people over time and their expectations around the environment that they want to work in. It's very different than the traditions that banks used to represent. And so I think, you know, largely TD is a reflection of its colleagues. And what you're seeing is an organization that is maturing and becoming more diverse as it reflects the population at large. And I also think, too, that, you know, most organizations talk about being values driven. They talk about having great cultures. But I think for you know large institutions to win, they really have to bring that to life if they don't. People have choice. They can leave. And so when you look inside of TD, I think what you're seeing is an organization that recognizes, one, our colleagues are demanding this. Two, it's a strategic imperative we're going to win. And three, it's just a heck of a lot more fun to work in an environment that's diverse and inclusive. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> it may have been a while since you worked in the bank, but Derek will testify to this, we have a ton of fun. And I think we have fun because people feel they can be themselves. They don't have to hide who they are. Uh, and they can bring themselves to work. It makes a huge difference. Huge difference. Take me back for a minute and paint the picture for me. I mean, you've both been with TD for a long time. And Paul, I want to ask you this first. What's it been like for you being part of the DNI evolution at the bank and seeing the way things have evolved? I mean, tell me about the way things have changed since you started as a part-time customer service rep way back in 83. Yeah, I mean, so you think about this, um, I'm uh, 54 years old and I've effectively spent all of my life in TV, you know, and I say all of my life because, well, I started when I was 17. My mother was a banker and she worked for TV. 
So, you know, TV was part of my house. I can't remember a dinner conversation that didn't involve TV. Uh, and so that means I've watched this organization grow and change over that 54 years. And I would say, you know, from a culture perspective, if I'm honest, um, the real evolution of this bank really began uh, when we purchased TD Canada Trust. We became a lot larger organization. We became a lot more geographically diverse organization. Uh, and, and our values began to evolve to reflect that. You know, I've been chair of the Persons with Disability Committee for 12 years now. And, you know, to watch an organization that when I took on this role and reached out to some executives in the bank who had a disability and they said to me, Paul, I'll meet with you. But it has to be confidential and it has to be off bank premises to today where those same executives are the ones that talk about their disability openly. They, they write blogs inside of the bank. They talk about the challenges we have, what we're doing wrong and equally what we're doing right just speaks to a move that was initially born in awareness to one that has quickly shifted to awareness and let's get accommodation right to now let's actually really think about contribution and what we need to do differently. It has been a pleasure to watch this organization evolve, but you know, I, I, I just keep coming back to the same thing. Um, leaders do have to create the right environment. There's no question. But in the end, we just reflect what our colleagues expect and what they want to see happen. And this has really been a colleague-driven initiative for us that I think has largely reshaped this organization. You can hear the passion in it for me, and, and it is, it's incredibly passionate for me. I would tell you when uh, it's our existing CEO who used to chair the Diversity Leadership Council, and he asked me to take on this role. And I said, you know, I, I don't have a disability. And I don't think I'm the right person. He said, that just makes you the right person. Uh, I want you to get in there and I want you to learn. You know, fast forward to, you know, just a couple of years ago where, you know, my son uh, began to have um, seizures. Uh, and then ultimately after six to 12 months, while he's in first year of chemical engineering at Queens, we find out that he has a very rare form of epilepsy to when he graduates and then gets type 1 diabetes. And it's interesting because while I didn't have that understanding before, the bank helped me prepare for my personal life. And I, and I think that just speaks volumes about our organization. I've been a better dad uh, as a result of it. And my son has benefited from having a father that is more open and understanding of the challenges he's going through. And I think that's the secret sauce. When the bank can find a way to help you, not just in your business life, but in your personal life, I think that's huge. So that's sort of the watershed. Yeah. Derek, what's it been like for you watching the evolution? Yeah, well, I've, uh, I've also, uh, similar to Paul, uh, uh, been with the bank for a long time, maybe not quite as long as Paul, <laughs> but uh, I mean, I've really made a career out of it. And I, I think a lot of economists, uh, we typically uh, joined, uh, joined a bank uh, to kind of practice our trade, which is economic forecasting. And I have to say, I've really enjoyed it to Paul's point. Uh, but, it, you know, what I do, but also being part of an institution, I think, that uh, has really made it fun and, and the reason why I've stayed so long. But I've really seen the growth o over the years, the, the culture of uh, growth, and uh, it's been fabulous. But I think for me, there's the other aspect that I've also seen um, the economics department evolve in terms of our contributions to broader debates. Uh, we go back to the traditional 
uh, bailiwick of economics departments trying to predict the future, you know, interest rates and the like. Um, you know, a good 10 years ago, TD Economics really started to get more involved in, in public policy, and it's something that we continue to do. And, uh, you know, this report uh, is part of that. So uh, now, so that's great. We've been able to write about it, but I've also been able to put into practice a lot about what we say in reports in terms of my leadership role within TD Economics. And, and I have to say, it, it's uh, a story comes back to my head. Um, you know, it, it's something that at the time was so incredibly unusual um, that when I first began with TD Economics, uh, there was a lot of talk about uh, an economist that used to work for, for the group and uh, was probably the best economist that the department had ever seen. It turned out he was blind. And, and you're going back to the 19. The, uh, the late, the mid to late 1990s. So you can imagine the lack of technology then. But we had somebody who could not see it all, who was able to make up for it, and just had tremendous talent. And um, you know, uh, he was there. You know, even a good 10 years before me. So um, I, that story always sits with me. It's that you know the, the barriers that he would have faced back then would have been huge, and yet he was able to, to, to turn his talents into something that was just extraordinary. And, you know, Derek, on, on that point, that's a really great example of somebody who's a, a trailblazer. They were leading the way, and it really, it supports both what you and Paul are talking about around the fact that you both had this opportunity to witness this, this maturing at TD, this evolution that's been happening um, as, as you move towards becoming more diverse, as you move to becoming thought leaders and leaders, um, and even in this evolution of your, your public policy work at TD, I mean, you're stepping into areas that weren't traditional, I think, in the financial services years ago. Um, so when you think about all of those things and your, your personal experiences and your experiences with your coworkers and colleagues, where do you think we need to be a decade from now? And where do you think we will be a decade from now on, on disability and employment? And I, I ask either one of you to start. I'll jump in on this one. Um, I thought a lot about this uh, over the last few years as we evolve our own strategies inside TV. And I would say the first thing is 10 years from now, I would hope that the subject of accommodation is gone. That it's just not something that we spend time on. That's not to suggest that it won't evolve and that we need to pay attention to it, but that it's just a given. It's just something that happens in every organization, that every organization is mature around its practices and how it tackles accommodation, and that it's seamless, that it's no different uh, than any other aspect of employment uh, that you know an employer has with an employee. Uh, and so that I would put that first and foremost. I think the second thing that I would say is back to this notion of contribution is that you know, for us, that we have very mature um, uh, processes and thoughts around how we develop colleagues, um, because you know, you know, we have we do a lot of work with Specialist Stern, uh, and you know, it's interesting because they've taught us so much around how to bring someone into an organization that has a disability. But what they've taught us even more is how to help them be successful. And I think if we can just ingrain these processes into our everyday life. I mean, I'm a banker, I will admit I love process, but you need it. 
and that rigor can make a huge difference. I would say that's the second thing. And then I would say the third thing, and, and this is probably the most important, is that we recognize that to get this right requires a level of engagement from all of us that doesn't mean you get to mail it in. You know, there are times, uh, even inside TD, that I have to press for engagement, and I shouldn't have to do that. I shouldn't have to do it because it should just be a given that everybody understands the value of persons with disability to our organization. But I still have that education to do, and I'd like to think that down the road we weren't there. And then just one sort of uh, last little piece here is that, you know, we consider ourselves a leader in this space, and and I've spent a lot of time with Yasmin LaRoche, uh, the deputy minister. At, you know, I've chatted to Carla a few times, and 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 while I'm proud of what TD's done, um, I would like to see us have a greater impact on helping not just ourselves improve, uh, but other organizations improve in recruiting and developing talent when it comes to persons with disabilities. And and thank you, Derek. What are your uh, what are your thoughts around this? Where where yeah, do you I, need I, to be? Yeah, I mean, Paul raises a lot of really good points. Uh, I am I am optimistic. Um, you know, part of it I think just comes down to just market forces. Well, there there are two bits there. I mean, the regulatory side is is coming around with uh, last year's passage of the Accessibility Canada Act. Um, provinces have moved further ahead, so I think. We're seeing momentum in terms of, um, of legislation there, but I think just the imperative, um, you know, and, and to some extent, government policy will be formed by the voter base, which increasingly will shift towards a population with a higher uh, preponderance of people with disabilities. So policy will frame around that. Uh, we've talked about some of the market forces around, um, you know, HR needs. Um, you know, I think that'll be key. But, but when you talk about market, one thing we haven't really delved into, it, it's sort of there are two pieces there on, on the market side. There's, there's labor force, but there's also the, the growing business opportunities uh, to come up with goods and services that meet the needs of a growing share of the population, which is people with disabilities. So, you know, I think there, there's another uh, positive force. In terms of the pandemic, um, you know, clearly the pandemic has been, you know, it's, it's upended a lot of things. Um, you know, and I do worry about its impact, the immediate impact on people with disabilities in terms of, you know, the struggles that they will face financially, um, you know, and the like. I, I, I cited some of the, the statistics around people that are struggling to make rent right now. But, you know, there may be some silver lining, some uh, positive forces that come out of this. I'm thinking, you know, we're shifting more to a, a world of flexible work arrangements, trends that were in place heading into the pandemic that will be if anything, accentuated by it, the idea of work from home, uh, more flexible work arrangements. This can really benefit the people with disability community going forward because this is the sort of thing they need. They need flexibility in many cases with regards to work schedules and other opportunities. So that's a force that I can see being accelerated by this year's very unfortunate uh, crisis. Um, and uh, that's something I think that will help to uh, accelerate trends uh, on the labor force side uh, with respect to people with disabilities. For sure. Well, yeah, and you know, you both of you brought up so so many important points around that, and I think um, you know this would be a great opportunity to talk about um, how do we harness these changes, and uh, 
you know, with the acknowledgement that, that, like you said, COVID has really, uh, it's shone a light on, on some inequalities that, that most of us knew existed, but now it's really out in the open mm-hmm. uh, and it's changing the dialogue. And, uh, you know, uh, it's it's normalizing some of this dialogue as well and, and making it common. And Paul, you know, you talked about 10 years from now, accommodation, uh, you know, being seamless and, and normalized and processes in place. And, uh, you know, you've talked about uh, the work that TD has been doing with Specialist Turn, which is a phenomenal organization and a great model and uh, highly successful. And, you uh, know, for both job seekers and for the businesses that uh, that work with specialist RNA and receive their their supports, and it makes me think about everything that both of you have just said. Really makes me think about a, a quote from uh, from your report. Uh, it's a quote that I've been using quite a lot recently. Um, the maximization of human potential that occurs when barriers to labor markets are removed. And people are free to participate to the fullest extent they can is the ultimate benefit of policies to increase labor force inclusion for people who have a disability. So when you think about that, um, that very powerful statement and all of the things that we've just been talking about here, how do you see, how do you see this helping everybody to make sure that, um, that that this is normalized, that inclusive and diverse workplaces are just how it is. It's no longer the secret weapon or secret sauce. Um, Derek, what are, what are your thoughts on that first? Well, yeah, and that's, uh, that's, that's a great quote from, from the report. We did uh, in that report as well, try and put some economists like to try and quantify uh, benefits. Uh, I know a lot of, uh, just better inclusion is beyond just sort of quantifying gains in, in income uh, from, that can result from positive uh, policy changes. Uh, so, you know, these numbers, if anything, probably understate uh, the true economic benefits from better inclusive uh, inclusion policies with, with respect to PWD. But we ran uh, two simulations in the report, one where we managed to narrow the gap uh, in employment rates between the broader population and, and, and the, the PWD segment by one third, uh, and then up to one half. And, um, you know, we didn't go fully the way because I think, you know, uh, that would be obviously amazing if we could fully close the gap, but we did, um, you know, build in some conservatism there. So we assume in best case we can close half the gap, which is still would be a huge amount of progress from status quo. But uh, it would create something like 440,000 jobs over the next uh, 10 years. It's that kind of that's that kind of benefit uh, that we'd be looking at. So you think about higher incomes, uh, that in turn could lead to more tax revenue, uh, you know, reinvested in, in public, uh, you know, in public infrastructure and the like. There can be enormous knock-on effects from it. So we do our bit to try and quantify just because it does resonate a lot to, to Canadians when they read the report, uh, to governments as well. Um, so, uh, that, uh, that I think was an important contribution there. 
Well, there was a there was a number that you used, and and being somebody who's sat very comfortably in the uh, in the not for profit world, um, I didn't come up through a financial background at all, and so numbers weren't always really super comfortable for me. Uh, but your report actually did did help me to understand it quite a lot. And what really jumped out for me in this part in this section of the TD report was that uh, the on those on those forecasts, that 1.4% increase in the gross domestic product, and then you translated that into the dollars, and uh, and and that's approximately 36 billion dollars being added into the gross domestic product or the GDP uh, by 2030. If if we can harness this power and maximize people's potential, and I found that number quite staggering. Yeah, I think that's under the one third case. If it's if, if it's mm-hmm. one half, I think it's something like fifty billion. So uh, a little bit higher, but uh, well, significantly higher. But I think again, it just understates the the true economic potential here. Absolutely, and hopefully we'll have a chance to talk a little bit about uh, that concept of contribution and uh, and the 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 consumer market base that we're also talking about here. But Paul, um, your your thoughts. Yeah, I want to go back to this, the normalization term, um, and and just think a little bit about COVID. It's been interesting, uh, you know, we as an organization, as, as, as we started to evolve our thinking around how to tackle some of the challenges within the community, we made a decision to go straight at mental health. And we did that because in the past inside of TD, when we talked about persons with disability, there was more comfort with talking about disability in the context of what you can see. But the minute it became about those disabilities that you can't see, you know, it got into conversations around privacy and discomfort and not wanting to say the wrong thing. Because we focused on mental health and because, you know, we brought executives to the table who were willing to talk about their own challenges and because we've done so much um, in terms of benefits and accommodation, as we entered COVID, we found three things happen. The first was people with mental health issues were the first to speak up to say, you need to be ready. You're going to have way more cases of depression and anxiety. You're going to have more employees and colleagues who are all of a sudden experiencing challenges they never had before. And you need to be ready to lift them up to help them. And they pressed us pretty hard on this. The next thing that happened was that because um, you know we had taken out a lot of the stigma inside of TD, we were having people coming to us, and we realized we needed to get out in front of this. And so, you know, almost right from the outset, I can remember it was March the twelfth was the day that I went home uh, and have not been back in the office since. Uh, we began the process of thinking. What about all the wellness programs that we need to do? How do we get in front of this as leaders? How do we have conversations around our own challenges, our own experiences, so that we normalize the dialogue? Uh, and we recently, uh, and we do these annually, but you know, we recently did, we call it TV Pulse, but it is an anonymous engagement by our colleagues to come back and say, what can we be doing better? What's working? Uh, and uniformly across the whole bank, what we heard, was that you've really stepped up to support us through COVID. 
And I would say that's only because of the work we've done in the mental health space. You know, when you take out the stigma and when you make the conversations easier, it's amazing how that, I don't want to call it normalization. It's not the right word. Um, but that openness to talk means you quickly have an openness to resolve and move forward. And so I think we've been pretty proactive. And if you think about it, uh, you know, I find Eric Kras sometimes. It's always about the numbers. And usually economists end up using those numbers with the CEO to give us bigger plans. But, you know, I think he's right in what he's saying. The opportunity is tremendous, both in terms of revenue, but think about the savings and cost of people being on leave, of losing them because you're not supporting them. And now you have to go out and hire someone else who you have to train and may not be as effective as they were in role. There's just the economics of getting this right are so compelling. Uh, and I think they're making a big difference for us as we go through COVID. It sounds like the economics of getting it right are really closely tied to including everybody in the process from the very beginning. And as I mentioned off the top of the show, we had Federal Minister Carla Qualtro on the first episode, and she raised this point. She said she thinks we've done really well in this country on the duty to accommodate disability, but not so much on the idea of including people from the beginning in decision-making. She called disability kind of an afterthought in a lot of conversations, and consequently, the whole DNI conversation reflects that. What do you think about that? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in here. I mean, Minister and I have had lunch to talk about this very subject and a couple of other things. And I would say, on the whole, um, I would agree with her, but respectfully, inside of TED, I would disagree with her. Um, and, you know, it's simply because of the way that we've approached our development of our talent uh, and the way we've been very mindful and thoughtful around how we build teams uh, that are diverse and inclusive. And so, you know, whether it was the example that I gave earlier, uh, on mobile uh, uh, phones and our thought around uh, bill deposits or check deposits. You know, the other example I'd give you is I used to call him MacGyver, but you know, Bert Floyd, who runs our accommodation uh, tech team inside of TD, was, it was the first of its kind in the financial institutions, and we've invited others in to have a look at it. You know, Bert is at the front of every decision we make when we think about how we onboard colleagues. When we think about how we give them capabilities to do what they need to do in a way that makes them most effective. And he's also at the table with the Diversity Leadership Council with me to think about what we need to be doing differently. And so I think when you think about disability and have it driven by a mixture of members from the community and people who sit outside the community but are strong allies, I think you largely get past what the minister was talking about. I just think for a lot of organizations, that maturity isn't quite there. Now, I'd be the first one to say in TD, we need to be better at this. There's no question. I think we're always trying to get better. Uh, but I feel really good about where we are and, and how we are proactive. So put your diversity and leadership council hat on here for a minute. I mean, do you look at diversity and inclusion together or do you look at them separately? The reason I ask is there was a Gallup article a few years ago in which authors Ella Washington and Camille Patrick wrote that the whole problem with DNI is that they've been lumped together for the last 40 years and they shouldn't be because they're two different things. They said looking at diversity and inclusion collectively really hinders an organization from improving either of them. What do you think? Yeah, this is for me, you know, a simple view of this. 
if if you start at the back end of it and and just think about diversity so you know why what's the big deal you know why do you need to be diverse it is about diversity of thought it is about uh, diversity uh, that reflects the broader community it is about creating an environment that everybody uh, wants to be in and people want to be in a diverse environment they want to learn from people who are different from them they want their experiences they want to be around them if if that's a strategic imperative the only way you can get there is to be inclusive but the two are very different things inclusion is how you get diversity but it is a very different thought process from you and an inclusive organization is one that is the first place that someone thinks about that they want to go to you know, someone wants to join a bank, we want them to think that TD is the most inclusive organization on the street. The outcome of that inclusion is that we'll get diversity of thought, which then helps us be a better organization, but they are two very separate things. So, you know, inside of diversity inclusion and TD, when we talk about them, we think about strategies that drive inclusion. We keep them separate from strategies that drive diversity of thought. And, and, and it is important to do that because I think when you mix the two, uh, you water down both sides of that equation. You do have to treat them differently. Uh, and so I, I don't think we always did. I think there was a tendency to lump them together as one, but we're definitely not doing that today. And Derek, I'm going to, I'm going to turn this over to you for, for a minute because I'm realizing that we're getting close to the end of our recording time with you both. And I want to sort of try and rewind a little bit on this conversation around um, not looking at it just from a, the contribution to the social safety net and income taxes being paid, but take a look at the harnessing this power um, from a consumer standpoint. So we know uh, there's a couple of simple facts, 22% as reported in, in the last StatsCan report, 22% of Canadians identify as being a person who has one or more disabilities. Uh, globally, uh, we know that people who have a disability make up uh, the world's largest minority at 15% of the global population. Uh, in Canada, we know that when you combine close friends and family members, the dis disability population grows to, to impact or affect 53% of the population and actually control, according to a number of reports, around $13 trillion in disposable annual income every year. So when we think about facts like that, uh, Derek, especially, when we think about these facts and we think about uh, what your Seizing the Opportunity report has put out around um, the fact that, you know, people who have a disability are an important and growing part of Canadian society and um, that if we close the gap more generally, we would have positive economic benefits. When you put those two thoughts together, what do you think it's important for, for businesses and governments to, to think about and to, to work together on so that, uh, so that recruiting and retrain, retaining people is, is business as usual and that we're able to reflect the, the true Canadian population? Yeah, I mean, this, this is uh, the, the critical thing. And, uh, you know, just to your point on just that consumer base, I think that's probably... Uh, would be great fodder for a forthcoming report from TD Economics because it's something that uh, in the study we did last year we we don't uh, we don't spend we I think we do mention it but I think it, it would be something that would uh, really warrant further 
exploration just because the numbers, as you say, are massive. And you think about to the extent that we can uh, get more people with disabilities in the workforce, higher incomes, how that consumer base will just continue to grow. So, um, so I think, you know, again, I, I come back to my point about how um, I just see a huge momentum there, even um, you know, even if government were to, weren't to do much at all, I, I see real momentum, just sort of the, the imperative, the market forces that are going to drive uh, things forward. I, I do think the right policies uh, will only accelerate that. Uh, so, you know, I, I see enormous scope for collaboration there. Um, you know, I, I point out the, the great work from the chambers as well. Um, a number of people have reached out to me to kind of, can you speak at you know, an upcoming event and the like. And I, I've done a, some of that. The invitations hopefully will continue to come in. Albeit, as I say, lately it's all been about, okay, what's the impact of the pandemic on, on GDP growth next uh, next quarter seems to be the focus. But I can see it coming back. And I think further reports from TD Economics are hopefully going to continue to, to keep this, uh, this front of mind in terms of some of these economic uh, opportunities. You know, just before we wrap things up here, you know, I'm wondering what's your best advice to any business owner or leader, I mean, regardless of business size, and they say, you know, well, we don't have the same financial or people resources to dedicate to DNI as big institutions like TD. What's your best advice if they're not yet being proactive and intentionally recruiting skilled candidates who have a disability and, and they're not, you know, getting on board the wagon yet? Oh, go ahead, Paul. You go ahead. No, oh, sure. I can't. So, um, I would recommend everyone who is really digging in here to do something that's actually quite simple. And that is go out and TD, we call it reverse mentorship, but go out and get a mentor, a mentor from the community. Because I, I do think, especially in smaller organizations where you don't have the diverse populations that you can readily access to, to learn uh, and, and build a strategy and this, the easiest way to do this is to reach out to the community. And the great thing is there are so many organizations that anyone can get in touch with and they would be nothing but happy uh, to have somebody from that community come out and talk to them. You're obviously, you know, the, the PWD community itself is incredibly diverse. Uh, but, you know, just talking to a couple of people with disabilities to understand what they see as working, what they'd like to see change, I think is a good start um, because that allows you to frame uh, how that could apply inside of your organ organization. So I would start there before doing anything else. Derek? Yeah, I mean, that's a terrific suggestion. I do think a lot of uh, sort of small, medium-sized enterprises, uh, the awareness is, is uh, a challenge and it, it's understandable. So I think Paul's suggestion is great. I, I, you know, I think, uh, you know, I'll, I'll certainly do my bit of just to remind, um, uh, you know, business owners, leaders out there, the hard stats and, uh, that's certainly a role that uh, that I'll continue to play. I mean, look at the hard stats, and you can't ignore them. If you do, you risk uh, fishing from a much smaller pond in the future in, in all respects. So, um, so yeah, I think the the data is, is certainly a key key aspect that needs to be uh, put into any kind of advice uh, to, to business owners. Unfortunately, we're coming to an end, and uh, I think that we could have this conversation. I'm furiously writing notes and making more questions up as we go along. Uh, but I would just like to thank both of you, both our guests, once again, for having this conversation with us. So you've been listening to You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D. 
And we've been talking with Derek Ralton, Vice President and Deputy Chief Economist at TD Bank, as well with Paul Clark, President of TD Direct Investing, Executive Vice President of TD Bank Group, and he's on the TD's Diversity Leadership Council and the Chair of TD's People with Disabilities Committee. And I'm Jeanette Campbell. And I'm Dean Askin. Wherever you're listening from, thanks for listening to this episode of You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D. And join us for a new episode every month as we look at the power of inclusion, disability and employment, and the business benefits of DNI from all the angles. You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D is produced in Toronto, Canada by the Ontario Disability Employment Network. All rights reserved. Our podcast production team, executive producer and host, Jeanette Campbell, producer, Sue Defoe, associate producer and host, Dean Askin, audio editing and production by Dean Askin. Our podcast theme is Last Summer by Ixon. If you have feedback or comments about an episode, contact us at info at odinnetwork.com. That's info at O-D-E-N-E-T-W-O-R-K.com. You can't spell inclusion without a D. Join us each month for insights from expert guests as we explore the power of inclusion, the business benefits of inclusive hiring, and why disability is an important part of the workplace diversity and inclusion conversation. Listen to You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D on Podbean or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.